this week on a lively experiment. Governor McKee's plate got a lot fuller this week as he has to address issues beyond COVID and the budget. And will this be the year that line item veto legislation actually makes it through the General Assembly? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for the analysis, Ken Block, founder of Watchdog RI, political strategist Rob Horowitz, and Sun Chronicle columnist Donna Perry. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Governor McKee continues to stay on message about COVID and getting people vaccinated, but he has a few new issues this week. We'll get to the COVID part in just a second. But first, he has uh, looking at a proposed three-year moratorium on charter schools. That was the subject of a big hearing this week. And also, how far should the state of Rhode Island go in acting on climate change? Let's begin with the educational part first. Rob, let me start with you. Uh, McKee, is, it's interesting dynamic between him and the unions, and he's been a big proponent of charter schools. What's blowing up this week is now that the Providence Teachers Union basically has voted no confidence in the commissioner, and the governor's kind of walking a fine line here. How how far do I get in? This is Governor Raimondo's pick. So break this down for us as he begins to look at this and the charter school issue. Yeah, I would say that for him, and also substantively, the most important thing is um, is to back the education commissioner because the problem in the past for Rhode Island has been fits and starts on all kinds of, of educational forms. If you can compare that to Massachusetts, where they've stayed the course and, and gotten some really good results. Now, the education commissioner, sometimes you know her bedside manner could be better, but I think the only thing you can do in a situation like this is back her to the hilt and then also a, a, a attempt to do some kind of, there, there's gonna be some kind of mediation because you do need teacher buy-in for this. But the first thing people need to know is she's got some leverage and the only way she will continue to have some leverage to make those decisions and and to and to get to the fundamental change we need is to back is to back it. And I think for McKee, it's he needs to stick to his guns. It's true the teachers unions won't like it, but I think that's the best move politically too. Yeah, she had said, Rob, uh, at one of the recent briefings, she said, somebody was asked her, how far are you on negotiation? She said 90%. Looks like that might not have been uh, really what it was. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's probably the case. And these negotiations are difficult. And you see this within the police departments and teachers unions. It's, it is a technique to vote in no confidence. And there is genuine tension. And it's been a rough year, I mean, given the pandemic. And I'm sympathetic to teachers. On the other hand, you do have to upgrade performance and the buck's got to stop someplace. And I do think it's even it's, it's politically the best play and it's on it's on McKee brand. So I wouldn't try to you want to you want to be fair to all sides. But but for him politically, even in a Democratic primary for his niche in a multi-candidate field, I think just like Gina ran on the pension stuff, even though it was unpopular, it's what is what brought her in with some of the unions. I think this is a smart political play for him and a smart substantive play. 
Donna, the, uh, the issue has been for him, uh, he's been a big proponent of charter schools. And it's interesting. You know, I only remember Governor Mundo once actually going to a House Finance Committee hearing to testify on something. He was there right out of the blocks because this is something he's really concerned about. The proposal is for a three-year moratorium, and that's run into some resistance. Yeah, and I would agree with Rob. I think there comes uh, a point where, you know, you can only play it safe for so long uh, for McKee. He is in the role. I think after the year that we've had, I think Rhode Islanders are looking for leadership. Um, I think something about Romando and education that stood out and she's been widely, was widely applauded for it, is she stuck to her guns and she had that conviction. No, we need in-person learning one way or another. And I think at this point, um, when you have the history of the Providence schools, um, and I, I would say that they do deserve a lot of credit in a real difficult year. They did go back in September and mind you around, you know, Boston, other urban areas, um, a, a lot of cities, they did not get the kids back in in person. So they deserve that recognition. And that's all the more reason I think all of this is playing out will be very unfortunate. And, and that's an understatement. If they drive out another commissioner of education. I mean, Rhode Island has just had the revolving door. And I think the leadership at the top matters. We all know what the Johns Hopkins report was. So I think after a real difficult year, um, they ho hopefully can, you know, kind of work a lot of these things out. And I do think um, it charters schools for when you have urban areas with the educational uh, dysfunction that you've seen in places like Central Falls and Providence, they're very important for a state like Rhode Island and uh, the population. So I, I think McKee uh, has that branding associated with him, and he's got to be not afraid to jump out of the box on some of this stuff. Mr. Block. You know, I don't see a more important issue in our state than trying to overturn what amounts to the educational status quo. We are disadvantaging generations of students. We know factually that the Providence school system uh, is one of the worst performing school districts in the entire country. And yet we see this continuous push to keep the status quo. We see the teachers unions in particular act against every reform that can bring meaningful change, not to the parents, not to taxpayers, but to the students. What, what we always seem to lose track of here is the students and their needs and to ensure that we can break the cycle of undereducation, that we can break the cycle of poverty, but we can't do that doing the same thing that we've been doing over and over and over again. I encourage Governor McKee to stay strong, to back our superintendent of schools, uh, and, and they need to do whatever they have to do to break the cycle that we're in, and we need to bring the changes. We need to keep the charter schools going because they do better than the public schools are doing right now. We need to Cha fundamentally change how that district is managed. We need to make sure if there are teachers who should not be teaching because of performance reasons, that they don't. Because at the end of the day, is it more important to uh, protect teachers or to protect the educations of students? That's a stark choice. And we continuously make the wrong one. We need to do better. Do you have a sense, Ken, quickly before we move on, do you have a sense on that charter school bill? McKee went and he testified. Clearly, he's be threatening a veto. I wonder if they have enough horses to be able to override that veto in the, in the, uh, in the legislature. 
Look, special interests dominate the General Assembly. There are very few special interest bills that don't pass when the, the special narrow interests get behind them. Uh, boy, I wish I owned an auto body shop, right? You know, I mean, there are there are things that you just cannot get done uh, with our legislature as it exists right now. And working against special interests is extremely difficult. Okay, Sorry, go ahead. Just one, one quick thing, Jim, because I, I think we're painting with a little bit too, too much of a broad brush. Um, the problems in the Providence school system, both been on the administrative end and on the teachers end, and the American Federation of Teachers, of which th that's the chapter in Providence, over the years has been supportive of some reform measures. So even though I agree on the direction that we should head in, we shouldn't make this a, a unions are all evil, they're the entire piece of the problem, especially not the AFT, because they're really not. That doesn't mean you don't need tough, strong leadership. You do. But let's but let's not just have the old, you know, let paint this as good versus evil, because it really isn't. Ken, do you want the last word on that? Uh, you know, for, for, for me, whenever you have uh, whenever you have obstinate resistance to changing the status quo, that's a problem that has to be fixed in whatever way you need to fix it. And what we're certainly seeing for sure in Providence is obstinate resistance to changing the status quo. And I think it's shameful. Okay, the COVID vaccinations continue to dominate the headlines. Things are getting a little bit better, both here and in other states, as more uh, vaccine comes in from the federal government. You remember last week we talked about 160,000 new people eligible, and they only had 16 or 1,700 vaccines. Uh, Donna, let me start with you because the golden boy up there in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, he's run into a buzzsaw because of a lot of what's going on with the vaccinations there. So uh, you obviously talk about Rhode Island, but I think Massachusetts is a good example. Even if you're a popular governor, trying to navigate this rollout has been problematic. Yeah, and um, and I will say that he in recent days, actually, um, so I think it's a smart thing. So he has said, hey, I'm going to take advantage of this, you know, almost two trillion in the federal bill. So they're, they're going to go after and get a FEMA, an additional mass vax site. Um, mass has definitely run into um, a bumpy rollout, or at least in the early going. But I might add that they, you know, when, when you compare the two states, and, and it's not fair to compare when you look at the size, but mass isn't that much bigger. It's uh, over 6 million residents. They have um, vaccinated fully vaccinated now it's about one point almost 1.2 million um and they're on their way to mid-april that anyone 16 or over um you know is allowed so i'll be in that category uh, i'm just <laughs> joking i'm already in the category um but that's that's the thing like all these governors you 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 need to it's a juggle act between getting the supply and getting you know smoother um tech platforms, but they have gotten their act together. I mean, they're, but I do think Rhode Island though has to be singled out for this strategy that I think is unusual anywhere to do this like zip code strategy. And I don't even know how that's exactly legal um, under CDC guidelines. I mean, it seems it's an over, over attempt at, you know, they're, they're taking equity and I think they're actually misinterpreting that because you certainly have those kinds of communities around greater Boston, but they've managed to do equity, but that doesn't mean you do it to the exclusion of other groups. I, I don't exactly understand um, Dr. Scott's strategy, but um, Mass, for instance, is up to about there. If you take all the sites together daily, they're doing like 85,000 people a day. So you can see 
the difference in the volume. Um, and I think that, you know, as we go along, um, is certainly these are going to be very, very important in the next four, six weeks. And I think you will really see wherever there's a slight bump up in infection, that's going to roll back. I mean, you're getting to a point where you'll have 2 million, 3 million uh, in mass. And Rhode Island as a state of under a million should certainly, you know, be able to get its act together uh, and maybe change that strategy. Yeah, Ken, one of the issues in Rhode Island, it's not the most technology computer friendly site, is it, to try to sign up? No, it's actually really awful. You know, as a technologist, uh, I've looked at that uh, website several times, and I don't know that I've seen a more user-unfriendly website for trying to book an appointment. You're provided a list of sites where you can get your vaccination, but you see the same site over and over again with different days. And even though it shows you that there are appointments available, when you click the day for the site, it says, oh, no more appointments. You have to go all the way back and try again. I mean, it's a really backwards design system. You really should be able to go in, look at a calendar where there are open appointments, click on the day, go ahead and make your appointment. Uh, it, it's really, it's shockingly bad. And, and I don't know how it's possible that the vendor hasn't changed it, uh, made it better. Uh, there are better websites that are out there. I don't know why we don't just go and get one. Uh, that's better to go. But you know, it's another failure of, of technology in Rhode Island. And this one really matters because it shouldn't be painful to book these appointments. And it's incredibly painful. Rob? Yeah, I I, I would agree on the website because I, I, I did the same thing Ken did. Um, and even the CVS and the Walgreens stuff, which you would figure would be, you know, because those are big corporations, would be easy and none of it is. I do think that if you look at, we should look at improvement. Harvard gave us, an, I think, an F to begin with. We're up to a B. Not an A, and, and that might be great on the curve, but a B is a better than an F. If you look at where we're ranked nationally, we're now about 14th and 15th out of 50 states. Candidly, that's better than how Rhode Island ranks on a bunch of these things. Every state's having this issue, having this issue, but but the issue I'm really more concerned about because in two or three weeks, my my gut is this is all going to straighten out because we're going to have supply, and supply is the key. Is vaccine hesitancy. And that's where we're going to really need the help of Donna and Ken, because if you look at the group, originally it was African-Americans and Latinos, mostly younger, and Republicans. African-Americans and Latinos are coming around. Republicans are not. So, so we need, um, and the White House is going to work with evangelical leaders. They're working with the Christian Broadcasting Network. But we need, obviously, doctors are most important, but we're going to need, this is quickly going to move from a problem of supply to, to, to getting everybody who, who is hesitant to be vaccinated to get vaccinated. And that's where we're going to need all our influencers and opinion leaders, and particularly on the conservative and the moderate Republican side. Yeah, if I may, Jim, and I, I wouldn't disagree, Rob. I, I do think there is a, a broad sector, and there's more research about that, um, where you know there were uh, Republican side or conservatives or whatever, and I hate to have, always have to label everyone, but that's true. And I think there were people who just felt throughout the whole Uh, pandemic and things were exaggerated and all this stuff. But I I also see that the CDC could help itself and help all of us with messaging. Um, And and that's where Dr. Fauci has come under some criticism because he's almost, I think they've changed that, but to be fair, but I think they have projected almost like, well, you get the vaccine and nothing changes. You get the vaccine and, you know, then you, you could still be reinfected. And, and he was saying those things about up to six weeks ago. And I think it, do, it did sort of, you know, it does take the steam out of people and think, well, gee, you know, if nothing changes and if they're kind of a hesitancy person, 
Um, I do think they've corrected that. And I think you have to be more hopeful to the public. And you you can't talk about, oh, people are going to wear masks till 2023. Uh, you know what? That is not an incentive. They Again, I think they're doing a bit of a course correction. Um, but to Rob's point, I think giving people the sense of the vaccine for you, Mr. or Mrs., you know, is the game changer. The vaccine means you get your life back like 100%. That may sound like simple and I'm saying it's, you know, it's messaging, but I think it all matters and especially the way um, stuff runs up on social media. There's attempts to stop, you know, where there is the disinformation. But I think that part of it is to say, whether you're a person who never gets a flu shot, it doesn't matter. Just go do this. And, you know, we, we all get our life back. I, I, I know that sounds basic, but I think that's actually a very important piece of how you're going to get over the hesitancy. What about that, Ken, the hesitancy and the messaging? You know, the, the shameful thing about the virus, the most shameful thing, in my opinion, is the fact that it's become politicized. Uh, there's nothing political about the virus. It's strictly scientific. And uh, we have to get the politics out of it. And we have to collectively pull together to do what we need to do so that we can bring our society back to what used to amount to normal. Uh, we need herd immunity. A lot of conservatives talked about herd immunity, herd immunity. Uh, some conservatives were happy to get there through mass infection, which I think was outrageous. Uh, the right way to get there is through mass vaccination. And uh, for anybody who believes in herd immunity, to reject the idea of vaccines has a really weird psychosis going on in their head because those two things are mutually exclusive from each other. I will tell you only get you only get actually I made that I said that wrong. You only get herd immunity through herd through mass vaccination. That's the only way you're going to get there. I will tell you, last week, despite the frustrations, I had gone on about 30 times between the CVS, the Walgreens, and the state website. I finally, and Ken, I know what you're saying, it was almost like a mirage. I signed on, there was Middletown, 252 available. So you're, you're thinking, I signed on, I started filling out, and I thought, I'm going to get bumped out, I'm going to get bumped out. All of a sudden, it was the, you know, the green check mark at the end. The one thing I'll tell you, they, they were unfailingly polite. I went to Middletown on Saturday morning. Everybody was happy to be there. There was this one couple in front of me pulling a total Rhode Island. They were from Cranston, and they were whining about having to go to Middletown. I was like, you, were, you hit the lottery here. You got the vaccination. So I refrained from slapping them being a public figure. But I just, I couldn't. Somebody was always going to find something to complain about, right? Just... Unbelievable. Um, let's, I just had to get that personal note in. Ken, uh, we would be remiss having you on if we didn't talk about line item veto. I wonder if uh, the landscape changes this year because you have a different Speaker of the House. Well, 100%. So this is year seven of a concentrated effort to try and bring the line item veto to Rhode Island, the veto very quickly. It simply represents budget transparency. It allows a governor to veto specific spending elements in a budget subject to legislative override. So if the, if the governor uh, knocked out one particular spending element, the legislature can put it back in with an override vote. This is something that 44 states have. It's strictly a transparency uh, mechanism, a budget transparency mechanism. And uh, the only roadblock to getting there is the Rhode Island House of Representatives. Uh, the Senate unanimously sponsored the line item veto, veto bill in, pre in a previous year. Uh, the public overwhelmingly in a poll showed acceptance for it, and why not? 44 other states do it. 
uh, it's the house that stands in the way. And for me, what's ultimately shameful about all of this is that uh, specific body is standing in the way of uh, what's good for the public interest for their own institutional self-interest. Uh, I'm hopeful that with a, a new speaker, we have a new governor, uh, and there's plenty of groundwork that's been done to set the table to get this reform made. Uh, if both houses bring the line item veto to the floor for a vote, it will pass. I'm confident of that. So let's move on. Let's get this done. Let's get this reform in place. Uh, it's the right time. It's, it's new players. Let's have everybody bring forward their, their good government uh, uh, capabilities, and, and let's get this thing done. I think it's a perfect opportunity to get it done. I did uh, contact Speaker Sakarchi's uh, spokesman who said, you know, it's the old, he's reviewing the bill. He wasn't going to comment one way or the other, although they have had a hearing. Rob, is this the year it goes through? It's been pretty contentious in the past, or at least the roadblock at Speaker Mattiello's door. I, um, I mean, I, I agree with Ken on this substantively, and I know he's worked really hard on it and deserves a lot of credit. I, 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 if I was a betting man, which I occasionally am, but it's more on sports, I wouldn't bet on this. And it's the point Ken raised. You're, the, you're, the, you're asking the General Assembly to voluntarily give up some of its power. Um, it should, but that, that, that I think the only time – it never really usually happens voluntarily. And I don't sense Ken has a better sense. You need a huge grassroots groundswell to do this. Look at how long it took us to get the separation of powers. You know, and that, you know, that was years and years – when we had scandal after scandal after scandal, that, that actually involved some of the General Assembly members. So I, I don't see it, but, but Ken's closer to it and I'm rooting for him. Donna? Yeah, and I wanna personally applaud Ken, uh, who has just done uh, mountains of work on this and has repeatedly pointed out that there are correlations to these kind of you know, governmental um, practices that separate Rhode Island from more better run states and and ken deserves all the credit and you talk about we've had a year of all about you know data ken ken's the data guy and he can show it and prove it to them um but again the political will is of course what unfortunately stands in the way with rhode island and you know hopefully though new a new gener you know there is a new era going on uh i i do think when you're coming out of the year we're coming out of smart budgetary decisions you know this is really a, a going to be a cliff for the state of rhode island if they can't just do that uh again coming out of an era when you've had massive business closings in rhode island we all know a lot of them and they're not going to return just the hospitality industry and retail and the restaurants and just pummeled um over the past year and that that's what you know really sustains a lot of local cities and towns. So um, Ken is absolutely right. And I think it's it's uh, coming out of the pandemic and maybe it's a new way for people to have a little more courage and look at it that way. Ken, you've sparked a uh, kumbaya moment on Lively Experiment. Total agreement between the panel. All right, let's go to outrageous. Rob, you have an outrage or a kudo this week. I have a mild kudo. No, actually, it's a big kudo. And then mild. I have a, no, I, and I don't normally do plugs here, but, but one of uh, Lively's uh, panelists, someone I've been on, and anyone who's ever watched us on together know we don't agree on much. What we do agree is his book is great, and it's out in paperback. It's uh, 
it's I think every 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 uh, drop of blood. I may have it wrong. The Lincoln Second Inaugural Ed Acorn's book, being one of the top twenty books by the Economist magazine. I just finished reading it. I highly recommend it. You look, it looks at Lincoln from the vantage point of Frederick Douglass and Walt Whitman, who covered the Second Inaugural. Everyone read it. My outrage is we still can't get common sense uh, gun safety legislation. Forty thousand gun deaths in this country every year. Um, Closing the, the background check loophole would help. One out of six guns still don't have a background check. Even if you go past the three required days, that's what happened in Charleston. There's no, uh, someone can get a gun who isn't qualified to get a gun. And we should ban high capacity magazines. Let's not have this, continue to have this conversation with no action. Everyone can still have the right to bear arms, but, but we can have some common sense regulation around it. Ken, do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? I have an outrage. Surprise, surprise. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I I helped uh, the Boston Globe with a story where we identified a real double standard at the Department of Labor, Labor and Training where permanently and totally disabled firefighters are able to work another job and yet receive free tuition for their uh, children, whereas totally and permanently disabled police officers cannot. A judge, the attorney general's office, and also a state auditor identified this double standard as a real problem, and they instructed the Department of Labor and Training in an audit to fix this, to go to the General Assembly and get it fixed. Uh, they haven't done that for seven years. I asked my state senator, who is the chairwoman of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, to please sponsor this bill to make the change. And in fact, her husband was the employee at the attorney general's office who said that this particular circumstance was ridiculous and it should be fixed. And her response to me was, well, maybe we'll form a study commission. Ugh. And I think it's outrageous. And this shows the power of special narrow interests at the General Assembly. It's awful when we can't even, we can't even get things done that judges the attorney general's office and an auditor says need to get done. And yet our General Assembly, those who are really uh, wholly biased in their legislating uh, in, to favor special interests, refuse to take even the, the mildest of things. And by the way, who can argue that, how can you be totally and permanently disabled and work another job? You know, this is an abuse of taxpayer money and, and my senator failed me completely and it's really outrageous. Hey Ken, it's the study commission and then once it gets there, it's held for further study. It's, it's, it's purgatory. No interest in sponsoring it and, and I, I, I still shake my head every day. I can't, can't believe it. Donna, what do you have? My outrage, um, which is related to what's going on with the border, I don't know if we're going to get to talk about that, but and, and all the issues around that, as we reach the point where President Biden is having his first uh, you know, presidential press briefing, which is a long tradition among presidents of the 20th century in this country, um, I, I just find it concerning. We have a rising lack of transparency. Um, being projected by this White House. And it it's really come more to light around the border. And my other piece of the outrage is we have a press corps, um, some of the national press corps, not all, that continues to think that they are, you know, um, the press secretaries, if you will, and the communication staff of the White House. I mean, there has been obvious blocking of access to this very troubled border situation, and you have the Border Patrol facilities, you have more than 500 unaccompanied children at least a day, these numbers are running into the thousands, coming in, they have the White House blocked press outright from actually seeing in there. And it took 
uh, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar to get in there. He was anger. He's a Democrat. He's fighting with Biden. And he had to get his own cell phone pictures to show the massive overcrowding. Uh, I'm sorry, COVID is spreading in there. Um, and, and now they're trying to sort of rewrite the story. But as he gets to uh, this, uh, we're taping today, but he's, he's doing his first uh, you know, wide ranging, non-teleprompter, uh, you know, off the script um, press conference. I hope the national media remembers what their job is and asks them a few questions. All right, Donna. Yeah, he didn't uh, he didn't consult with Governor McKee because apparently uh, McKee's briefing and uh, the Biden, Biden press conference will be the same. You might have to have dueling screens. Folks, I'm sorry. That is all the time we have. Rob and Donna and Ken, thank you so much for joining us. But we are not done, folks. We're going to continue this conversation about the border crisis. Join us for our online bonus segment, Lively Extra. Go right now to ripbs.org lively and you can hear Rob and Donna and Ken with their thoughts on that. For the rest of you, come back here next week and we'll look for you as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.